Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for your questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Oh, thank you so much, Sonia. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Program, Understanding the Role of Immunotherapy in Treating Cancer. And to that, this program is part one of a two-part series on immunotherapy, on a promising approach to treating cancer. Now, today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And really, because of that collaboration and your interest in this topic, which really is a very interesting topic for all of you, um, we've been able to reach so many of you on the call today. So we have um, on the call today over 441 participants on the call today. And you come from all over the United States, um, from both urban, rural, and suburban communities. And we also have um, participants from other countries, from Australia, Canada, India, Ireland, New Zealand, Norway, Sweden, Taiwan, and United Kingdom. So really um, from all over the world. And it's a really um, a credit to each of you. Um, you're clearly a group of information speaker speakers. And today's program is supported by Bristol-Myers Squibb, EMD Serrano, and a grant from Genentech. And I really want to thank them for their support. And we have the best speakers today, so I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Mark Chris. And Dr. Chris is attending physician, thoracic oncology service, Department of Medicine, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, Professor of Medicine, Weill Cornell Medical College. And Dr. Chris is going to present an overview of immunotherapy, including harnessing the immune system in treating cancer, how immunotherapy offers new treatment approaches, and immunotherapy and lung cancer. It's really my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Chris. Thank you, Carolyn, and, and thanks to everyone for uh, joining us today. Um, it has really been an uh, extraordinary time in oncology that within uh, uh, just a, what seems like a few years, uh, we now uh, have an uh, entirely new uh, approach to cancers. And, and what's, I think, very exciting is a, a, an addition to all the tools we had to fight cancer um, before the um, discovery and uh, proliferation of checkpoint inhibitors. Um, it's been a dream uh, that we could somehow harness our immune system uh, to fight cancer. Um, I don't know about everybody's biology training. Uh, uh, some have had more than others. Uh, I kind of like to think of the immune system as our, our, our body's uh, homeland security. Uh, the truth is, um, we ha uh, just a few, if just a few of the bacteria in our gastrointestinal tract made it into our bloodstream, we could be um, very, very sick in a matter of uh, minutes to hours, but our immune system uh, and other uh, body protections are working uh, full-time to keep us from pathogens that we all carry on our skin and in our gastrointestinal tracts. Uh, it, it sort of saves our lives uh, every second. The other amazing thing about the immune system is that the more we can understand it, we can use the same processes that are used in our body's natural defenses to uh, develop additional defenses 
against uh, a whole host of illnesses, particularly and and today uh, cancer. Um, I think uh, one of the crowning achievements in uh, medical history has been the development of vaccines, where we've taken horribly deadly or debilitating diseases like smallpox and polio, uh, and with the use of a vaccine, have effectively eradicated them. I mean, smallpox has been eradicated, uh, polio uh, getting close to that. Uh, a lot of discussion now about uh, the uh, measles vaccine, but I, I think one thing that discussion highlights is the amazing power of vaccines uh, and their safety. In fighting cancer, um, we have a number of different approaches, uh, uh, a, a lar and we're not all going to discuss all of them today. Uh, Dr. Betoff is going to be speaking after me, is going to be talking more about vaccines. Uh, many of you have read about these cellular-based therapies, uh, CAR T-cells, chimeric antigen receptor cells, uh, one example, uh, and also uh, targeted T-cells and other diseases, uh, the Provenge vaccine and prostate cancer, for example. Um, we've also uh, developed uh, technologies to uh, take uh, antibodies, uh, to make them in a laboratory, and use those antibodies to uh, target cancer cells, uh, monoclonal antibodies, things like uh, rituximab, rituxan, uh, very uh, cetuximab, uh, bevacizumab, drugs that may have, many of you have received or might receive. The other very exciting development in recent uh, days is to use those same antibodies uh, like uh, 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 the antibody trastuzumab or Herceptin and attach to that uh, a chemo drug. So instead of giving chemo into the veins affecting the whole body, chemo is targeted to a uh, monoclonal antibody that monoclonal antibody finds the cancer cells and delivers a, a small amount of chemotherapy to directly kill that cancer cell, sparing normal tissues, and actually being a much more effective fighter, too, because it puts uh, enough medicine at the site of the cancer cell. Uh, the uh, drug for that is a drug called uh, Seidla, a TDM1. It's used mainly in breast cancer, uh, also has been found to be effective in lung cancer in my field. What's happened in, in the last few years, though, is that as we have understood how our immune system is turned on and turned off and learned more how cancer cells can co-opt our natural immune functions to allow them to survive, we've been able to uh, devise medications uh, that can be given to patients uh, to undo the uh, immune blocking by the cancer cells. And there have been two classes of drugs. Uh, the first one was uh, what they call anti-CTLA-4, ipilimumab. Um, the second one are a whole class of drugs called immune checkpoint inhibitors, and there's a, a whole bunch of them. Uh, right now, there are at least six that have been FDA-approved for a host of diseases. Uh, since the last time we had a program like this, another one has been approved, a drug called semiplumab, Libtayo, uh, L-I-B-T-A-Y-O, uh, and this is a drug that's been approved for treating a serious squamous cell cancers of the skin. We also have nivolumab, prembolizumab, atezolizumab, dervalumab, and avelumab. All of these are approved for various cancers. Uh, and as it stands today, and again, I think this is only a partial list, these uh, agents are approved for melanoma, skin cancer, uh, tr uh, triple negative breast cancer, all lung cancers, bladder cancer, Hodgkin's disease, head and neck cancer, 
renal cell cancer, Merkel cell carcinoma, gastric cancer, and hepatocellular carcinoma. So uh, these medicines have been shown benefit, and I think the important thing here is that this benefit is um, a uh, one that uh, crosses uh, different um, uh, boundaries of cancer. It's not simply that it only works for one kind of cancer. It works for many. And I, I present to you the uh, amazing uh, opportunity we have now that these drugs are available. What do these drugs do? They clearly have the ability to shrink the cancer, just like a targeted therapy or a chemotherapy. Um, they can sometimes stop cancer from growing and not shrink it. But the other thing that we have seen that's just extraordinary, and this has happened in the lung cancer space, is that we can uh, apparently use these drugs to kill cancer, uh, and now many years after the drugs have been given, sometimes only a single dose of the drug in some patients, that the cancer stays away. And we've uh, started... Uh, uh, feeling that, that we can actually cure some cancers even when they're metastatic. The other development, and I'm going to particularly focus on lung cancer here, is that these uh, immune drugs, we call them checkpoint inhibitors, uh, ICI, anti-PD-1, anti-PD-L1, a lot of different names. Uh, but these drugs, at least in the lung cancer space, work even better when given with traditional chemotherapies. So in the last year, uh, for the initial treatment of all kinds of lung cancers now, uh, the most common initial treatment is not just one of these anti-PD-L1 drugs, like atezolizumab, nivolumab, or pembrolizumab. It's those drugs with our traditional chemotherapies, cisplatin-based chemotherapy, pemetrexid, gemcitabine, and taxane. So um, what we thought was a older therapy, um, maybe not as effective, becomes even uh, more useful now when giving with our uh, immunotherapies. So please don't be surprised if uh, particularly uh, if you uh, have a lung cancer that your doctor will be recommending uh, a chemotherapy with the immunotherapy. And the reason they're doing that is the best results in, in helping people have their cancer shrink and live longer have been with that combination. Um, the other thing that has happened in lung cancer and, and will be happening in other diseases as well. There was recently a very nice publication in bladder cancer about using these drugs before or after surgery or using them with radiation. So uh, be prepared to have other treatments recommended to you, and in the setting of giving it with surgery or radiation, it has the potential to improve the cure rate. So uh, please uh, be hopeful that these drugs are available to you. Um, there are very few contraindications, and, and your doctor can discuss them with you. Um, they provide a new way of, of fighting cancer. They do so in concert with the other kinds of treatments we have that have been proven to be uh, effective. Uh, and this is one more reason why when you are faced with a cancer diagnosis, faced with cancer treatment decisions, you put your team together, your personal team and your professional team, and come up with the right plan that's right for you. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Chris. That was a wonderful introduction to the call and to immunotherapy and a lot of information. So I know there will be lots of questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you so much. Um, and um, our next speaker is uh, Dr. Allison Beethoff warner And Dr. Warner is um, uh, she's a fellow, Melanoma and Immunotherapeutic Service, a Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And Dr. Uh, Beethoff-Warner is going to be addressing the role of clinical trials 
clinical trial updates, how research contributes to treatment options, and the emerging role of, chemo, of immunotherapy. So it's my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Beethoff Werner. Thanks, Carolyn, and thanks, Dr. Chris, for setting this up so well. Um, so as Carolyn mentioned, I am going to give us a general overview of what the clinical trial process looks like, why that is important to us as patients and as caregivers and as doctors, and then hopefully uh, spend some time talking about how immunotherapy has emerged from those clinical trials and where we see that going for you and for your loved ones. So uh, first and foremost, I just want to touch on the idea of a clinical research study or a clinical trial. And this usually starts from an idea that comes from a laboratory, and this is how we bring our new medicines to patients. Um, so there are multiple different phases of clinical trials, which you may hear about. The earliest phase is called phase one, and that is really when we are testing the safety of a new medication that has not been given to humans before. It's been tested in a laboratory, often with animals, to make sure that it does what we think it does, but this is the first time that it's been given to humans or humans at a particular dose or in a combination. The later phases, phase two and phase three, are much more about looking at efficacy of these drugs and do they help shrink cancers and help patients live longer. Many patients are faced with decisions about whether or not to participate in a clinical trial, either early in their disease course or sometimes later in their disease course, so we want to just take a minute and talk a little bit about the intent of clinical research versus medical treatment, and so that we can really think and make intelligent and informed decisions about what, which of these courses is the right way for each of us to go. So when we think about clinical research or clinical trials, it's important to know that we are working to answer a specific question through research using research volunteers. So the goal is optimally to obviously treat patients, but the primary goal of a clinical research trial is to answer a question. And so the intended benefit is generally intended to benefit future patients more than current patients. Um, in comparison, a sort of a standard of care approach is generally intended more to benefit an individual patient. It's more of a tried and true or proven approach. Um, and that's an important thing for us to know when we're making a decision about whether to proceed with a standard treatment or a clinical trial. It is really important for patients and their families and their caregivers to know that every protection is afforded to patients and research participants in a clinical trial to try to ensure that safety is you know, front and foremost in every clinical trial. So while these are experimental, there are many people overlooking this process to make sure this is as safe and effective as it can possibly be. Um, so why might one participate in a clinical trial? So some people participate in clinical trials because none of the approved or standard options have worked so far, or they haven't been able, a patient hasn't been able to tolerate the side effects of those treatments. So clinical trials can provide another treatment option when the standard therapy has failed. Others participate because they want to help contribute to the advancement of the knowledge that we have in a particular disease, or in this case, in the immunotherapy space. But increasingly, we're also seeing what we call frontline studies, or 
in uh, trials that are trying to bring new treatments before uh, more standard approaches. So Dr. Chris was mentioning this as well, that we are bringing new treatments earlier in a line of therapy or earlier in a course of therapy to patients. And you will increasingly see clinical trials that are looking at these drugs later, earlier in the process as opposed to later when patients have tried many other treatments. Um, it's important to know that there are many guidelines for which patients can participate in trials, so eligibility criteria, things like age, the type of cancer, how well or sick a patient is, how many treatments they've had before this, maybe where their disease is actually located, or particular laboratory values. So not every patient is eligible for a clinical trial. Um, with that, I want to switch to talking a little bit about immunotherapy trials and the emerging role of immunotherapy. So this concept is not a new one. For many, many, many years, we've been using different techniques to stimulate the immune system to try to help control cancer or even shrink it. And when we think about immunotherapy now, we are thinking mostly, as Dr. Chris mentioned, about what we call immune checkpoint inhibitors. So these are uh, molecules that help uh, control the immune response to cancer, and we are trying to take the brakes off the system to help the immune system recognize and treat cancers. The other very common uh, question that we are asked or treatment that patients are asking about now are approaches to modify the T cells or the effector cells of the immune system to try to help harness their response against cancer. And those are treatment options called CAR T cells, which uh, Dr. Chris mentioned, or TIL therapy, tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. But there are many other types of immune therapy that are emerging, things like other checkpoint targets. Some of them are in clinical trial now. A molecule called GITR has been studied pretty extensively. Uh, another molecule called TIM3 is emerging in many clinical trials, as well as antibodies that Dr. Chris was mentioning that bring the immune system to the target cancer cell, and these we often call BITE, um, or link that to a chemotherapy drug that can target uh, the cell of interest, in this case, our cancer cell. Lots of what we are seeing now are combining different approaches. So chemotherapy, as Dr. Chris mentioned, or targeted therapy that targets a particular mutation in a cancer, um, and radiation are all emerging as good partners for immunotherapy to give together to try to make both of those work more powerfully. Another option that your, your uh, physician may talk to you or your loved one about is the idea of using a virus to stimulate the immune system in combination with one of these immune stimulating molecules. And the idea here is that often these viruses can be injected into a tumor or inhaled, things like that, and then can help the immune system have an even more powerful response against the cancer. So there are many, many ways that we are learning now to combine not only these powerful immunotherapy drugs with each other in combination, but with our more standard therapies to really bring the best outcomes for our patients. So as Dr. Chris said, I think there is many, uh, there is a lot of hope to be had here, 
um, and we look forward to answering any questions that you may have. And with that, I'll turn that back to you, Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Beta-Forna. That was really excellent and, and really covered quite a bit of um, area for people to think about and also to have questions for you during the Q&A as well. So, so thank you. And our next speaker is Dr. Gregory Daniels. And Dr. Daniels is Clinical Professor of Medicine, Morris UCSD Cancer Center, VA San Diego Healthcare System. Um, and Dr. Daniels is going to address examples of immunotherapy in prevention, treatment, and recurrence prevention of cancer. He'll address cancer vaccines and immunotherapy and, and melanoma. It's my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Daniels. Thank you, Carolyn, and um, thank you, everybody, for calling in today. And, you know, I'll just acknowledge that I have eight minutes to talk about something that uh, really is um, eight days in explanation. And so I'll, I'll try to hone down on a few examples, and, and hopefully people will have some questions afterwards that we can dive into. But as Carolyn said, I'm going to talk about uh, immune therapy, which has been introduced by Dr. Chris uh, very well in the clinical trial overview for using immune therapy and prevention in cancers and talk about vaccines specifically and then see what's been done in melanoma. And there's a lot of vocabulary that I'm sure is overwhelming, you know, just listening to words like bite and CRISPR and CARS and checkpoints. And these, these words we use all the time, but... Um, you know, didn't really exist uh, five years ago in, in some of our common uh, vocabulary. Um, but these are the tools that we're using. Vaccines, however, as Dr. Chris has said, have been around in our vocabulary for some time. Um, and the idea is that the immune system can be pre-educated or alerted to dangers that are going on in the body. And so vaccines um, have an attractive feel that we can head off danger or prevent a problem before it even happens. So these would be uh, analogous to like a smallpox vaccine or the flu vaccine um, where we're given a, a dose of the, of the dangerous stuff. Um, your body develops a response usually with antibodies, uh, which are proteins that bind to it, and T cells, which are cells that go around and direct a, an army against the danger. So vaccines can be given in the hopes that we uh, never get the flu, or in this case, never get the cancer. And we'll talk about some of that in melanoma. That's different than a vaccine that's designed for treatment. And treatment is if a patient has or a person has a cancer and we want to eliminate that cancer with a vaccine, that's um, a little bit subtle difference and the requirements for that vaccine and, and how it works are, are different. Some more vocabulary, though, I have to go into because vaccines target things, and those things we refer to as antigens. Antigens are just uh, proteins, typically, but can be other things that the immune system can figure out the pattern and recognize that pattern of the uh, protein or antigen. And then we have to give adjuvants, and adjuvants are ways to stimulate the immune system to go after that target or antigen. So a prevention vaccine, uh, the ideal target is something that the immune system hasn't seen before. We get a response to that danger thing that would cause a threat in the body. 
And for cancer, uh, one of the best examples of a cancer vaccine and prevention is the human papillomavirus vaccine, or HPV uh, vaccine. And this is um, given to patients or given to, to individuals, um, ideally, before they ever get exposed to um, the risk of having this virus. This virus in cancer uh, causes cervical cancer, head and neck cancers, and is a sexually transmitted uh, virus. And so that's why you'll, you'll see these promotions out for um, hitting up uh, people when they're getting into their sexual maturation years. So you need to, to give this vaccine before um, the patient's been in, infected with the virus. And in this particular case, this, vir this uh, virus vaccine has been shown to be effective at uh, eliminating that uh, danger and um, has started to drop the rates of cervical cancer uh, further that we see and should be able to impact um, at least a subset of head and neck cancers from ever developing. So that would be an example of a, of a very effective, hopefully, um, strategy to, to lower and prevent cancers. Unfortunately, I, I would say in melanoma, we're not there yet. And um, we've tried this, and we've tried this in many different ways, of using uh, whole cells. Um, that's our term for taking tumor cells and making a preparation of all sorts of different antigens or targets for the immune system. We've used peptides, which are short segments of proteins. We've used DNA. And the problem with um, melanoma is that there is not a virus. There's not an easy target for us to go after something the body hasn't seen before. We're limited to targets that the body typically has seen or hasn't reacted against. And so these are what we call weak antigens, difficult to get a good response to, and they may not be specific to the tumor. So um, years back, and as Dr. Chris says, uh, you don't have to go back too far. Um, so a decade ago, Don Morton, um, who was from Southern California, uh, developed cancer vax, which was three cell lines plus um, an adjuvant uh, with uh, BCG. Similar uh, vaccine was tried, Malcolm Mitchell, uh, Melisin, two cell lines. And, and what they had seen were that in patients with measurable disease um, that they could get a response against the cancer. So they did a very large study, uh, Don Morton did, uh, looking at vaccinating people that were at very high risk of getting melanoma back. Uh, they had a uh, disease that was uh, taken out of their body, but unfortunately we knew that there was a high chance of it coming back. The study randomized people to get the vaccine and, and then not get the vaccine or a sham vaccine. And unfortunately, it was a very well done study and it uh, was very um, definitive in not working. So I'd say right now in, in melanoma, our prevention uh, vaccines are just not there yet. But that's not to give up hope because uh, we've learned so much in the last decade about how to target uh, vaccines. And a new, um, a new chest of targets has opened up, and these are called neoantigens. Neoantigens are, as the name implies, new uh, targets and come from the mutations that happen in a cancer cell that make it a cancer cell. So they have many advantages over what we were trying to do in the past. They're more specific to the cancer. There's no um, selection in the immune system not to react against these. However, 
it's a little tricky um, to try to identify these neoantigens in a reasonable time frame and at a reasonable cost. Um, but that uh, doesn't mean that we can't do it, and there's some really exciting strategies ongoing that are trying to address this. One thing that uh, was addressed earlier was that besides um, vaccines, um, figuring out how the immune system regulates itself has been really important in developing new tools against cancer. And checkpoints were mentioned, and checkpoints have been used to help prevent cancer from coming back in uh, several different tumor types. And again, I'll, I'll focus down on melanoma. In the past, we had very nonspecific ways of uh, trying to do this. Interferon was used in melanoma. It uh, has helped some people, but because of the toxicity, it's really fallen out of favor as we've developed some new treatments. Ipilimumab, as mentioned by Dr. Chris, um, came along and has shown to improve survival for patients that are at risk for melanoma coming back. Um, but it, too, had some uh, pretty um, significant and at times um, life-changing uh, toxicities. Then, and again, all I'm, I'm talking about really the last few years, um, this, is, this has been changing. We're now um, using pembrolizumab, nivolumab, these uh, PD-1 inhibitors, and showing, again, improvement in survival for patients um, for delaying the cancer from coming back and, more importantly, improve toxicities. So I'll just uh, wrap up by saying that you know, research is ongoing. The clinical trials introduced earlier are, are vitally important. Our therapies are really advancing quickly, and it's important to stay up to date in uh, what's going on. Um, the tools are being now used in, in earlier, earlier stages of um, cancer care to try to get it before it spreads. Um, as we uh, continue to define, to define these uh, topics with clinical trials, they'll come out and be available to more um, people. In melanoma, I'll just say that um, thankfully most patients are diagnosed at stage one, which uh, while has a risk of recurrence is, is uh, not high, and that most of our current strategies are addressing those patients that are at a little bit higher stage, such as um, 2B and, uh, and above. And so this will be true for all of these um, therapies that we, we just need to balance the, the benefits that we're seeing with the drugs and the potential um, the harm that the drugs uh, can cause. So with that, I'll turn it back over to Carolyn and the rest of the team. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Daniels. That was really excellent and um, a lot of very excellent information about uh, the treatment of melanoma and also just about immunotherapy in general. So thank you. I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. And our next speaker is Dr. Um, Ahmed Sawas. And Dr. Sawas is Assistant Professor of Medicine and Experimental Therapeutics, Center of Lymphoid Malignancies, Division of Experimental Therapeutics, Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons, New York Presbyterian Hospital. And Dr. Salas is going to be addressing the role of immunotherapy in the treating lymphoma, understanding immunotherapy treatment side effects, and key questions to ask your healthcare team. So it's my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Salas. Uh, thank you, Caroline, and thanks um, to Cancer Care for providing this platform, and thanks to all of you for joining this call. Uh, I'm charged with uh, discussing immunotherapy treatment for lymphoma, which is really an expansive field since we're talking about the disease of the immune cells and trying to 
talk about therapies that utilize these immune cells to treat uh, these aggressive diseases and these cancers. Uh, lymphomas, <clears throat> for those who've read about it and, and uh, for those who unfortunately suffer from it, realize that it's many different types and, and uh, the next WHO classification of lymphoma will probably have around 107 different subtypes of lymphomas. And over the years, the treatment for lymphoma has progressed initially from surgery to radiation to chemotherapy, and now we're focusing specifically on targeted approaches, and that includes molecular targets and immunotherapies. And for many of us, immunotherapies um, kind of present the potential for a magic bullet for the treatment of these diseases. And this is a concept that was developed around the turn of uh, uh, the 1800s uh, to the 1900s uh, by uh, Paul Ehrlich, who won the Nobel Prize for his work on syphilis. And his idea was that it could be possible to kill specific microbes which cause disease to the body without harming the body itself. And this concept is really what we're trying to approach with immunotherapy. How do we balance an efficacious, durable therapy with minimal toxicities. And this is the advantage that we're trying to provide over chemotherapy when we're treating these diseases. When we think of immunotherapy, we're thinking about utilizing the immune system. And the immune system is very complex. But one way to look at the immune system is to look at it as uh, there is something called the innate immune system. And this is represented by what we call neutrophils, macrophages, dendritic cells, and natural killer NK cells. These are cells that are homed and programmed to kill infections, to kill cancers, and we were born with them. And this is very different than a different subtype of immune cells called adaptive immunity or adaptive immune cells. And these are your B and T cells. And a lot of my colleagues... Uh, and their discussions talked a lot about targeting the adaptive immune system with the checkpoint inhibitors and the CAR T cells. And these uh, cells learn over time how to defend our bodies from infections, from cancers, by identifying, uh, like Dr. Daniels expressed, antigens. These are the markers on the surface of the cells that allow the immune system to identify uh, the different cells in terms of what's friend and what's foe, and identify different uh, cells that are growing and need to be targeted for death. So after this general introduction about the immunology and uh, lymphoma, I want to talk about the different types of uh, immune uh, mechanisms and immune therapies that are available, and I'll try to associate the toxicities uh, with them, kind of like merge these two points together. So the first immunotherapies that we experienced in the treatment of lymphoma uh, were the monoclonal uh, proteins. And those are proteins that are able to target specific antigens, specific receptors, specific proteins on the surface of the cancer cells and target either other proteins in the body or more preferably immune cells to come and attack uh, those um, 
cells expressing these antigens and these cancers. And the first example was in B-cell lymphoma with rituximab, and that, that provided significant advantages in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and aggressive lymphoma, as well as indolent lymphomas like follicular lymphoma and marginal zone lymphoma. Uh, kind of uh, rituximab 3.0 was ubuntuzumab, uh, and uh, basically what they were able to do is modify the portion of the protein to allow it to target more immune cells like NK cells and neutrophils rather than just proteins and made it much more effective. And that allowed for the targeting of CD20 on B cells to even be effective against some diseases that did not express a lot of CD20 like CLL. And not to forget uh, that in lymphomas there is B cells, there's also T cells. We have recently the approval of mugluzumab and anti-CCR4. CCR4 is an antigen that's expressed on some T cells, especially CTCL, and that was a major. And this drug showed significant improvement in the treatment, specifically of Caesare syndrome and leukemic disease. And these are similar to uh, these mechanism of action, similar to some of the antibodies used in solid oncology and breast cancer, like Herceptin, and uh, in some colon cancer and lung cancer, like Cetuximab, that target HER2 and EGFR, uh, respectively. There is also ways to use immune therapy as carrying or ve vehicles to carry um, specific payloads toxins to target uh, cancer. And that sometimes can be a, a, a radio uh, immunologic, so like uh, Zevalin, uh, which is used for follicular lymphoma, has a very high response rate, underutilized because of access, but very effective, or targeting a chemotherapy. And um, Dr. Chris mentioned Catsila. Uh, other things in uh, lymphoma include brituximab vidoting that targeted CD30, provided a significant uh, change in how we treat Hodgkin's lymphoma, and now it's recently approved in PTCL, uh, peripheral T-cell lymphomas, and it's being explored in uh, post-transplant lymphoproliferative disorders uh, and, uh, and other um, malignancies that express CD30. Uh, there's also drugs that are being uh, explored in diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, as well as T-cell lymphomas like CTCL, PTCL, Hodgkin's lymphoma, and some of these compounds like an ADCT compound, 301, uh, and et cetera. Of course, uh, checkpoint inhibitors have played an important role in cancer therapies in general and have some role in lymphomas. Uh, the role has not been as uh, extensive in terms of the PD-1 inhibitors. So in PD-1, the uh, cancer cells express an antigen that tells the, prevents the immune cells from attacking it, and uh, pembrolizumab and nivolumab allow to cover that antigen uh, and interrupt that, uh, interfere with that interaction, allowing for significant activity and durability in Hodgkin's lymphoma as well as many solid tumors. But another way to look at checkpoint inhibitors is not just limited to PD-1s and PD-L1s, but some of the tumor cells are able, and our own natural cells are expressing a signal saying, do not eat me signal, which is called CD47. And several compounds are in development that showed significant efficacy in overcoming that inhibitory signal, allowing 
the body to attack the diffuse large B-cell lymphomas and peripheral T-cell lymphomas that express that uh, signal, and that's uh, one of the examples of the compounds is the trillium compound. Uh, bites uh, and uh, are another interesting uh, concept. With these, we, we see uh, an immunotherapy that's able to attract uh, two different cells together. It's able to bring an immune cell and put it next to uh, a cancer cell. And blintumumab, blincido, was the first uh, approved drug that show, that was able to recruit T cells expressing CD3 to B cells from uh, an ALL and diffuse large B cell lymphoma that express CD19, providing significant improvement in response and duration of response. And these are T cell engagers that come with some of the toxicities that we worry about. Um, we're also able to engage natural killer cells like um, part of the innate immune system uh, which potentially can be less toxic, and that's through something, uh, one of the examples for that is AFM-13. Uh, it's a bispecific antibody, and we've done a significant work here at Columbia in the development of that drug for T-cell lymphomas and Hodgkin's lymphoma. Finally, the CAR-T therapies. The two CAR-T therapies, Yascarta and Chimera, that are approved, uh, showed efficacy uh, against uh, uh, CD19, uh, expressing malignancies in ALL and diffuse large B-cell lymphoma. In that process, the lymphocytes, the T-lymphocytes, are harvested uh, through the peripheral blood from patients. They're sent to a specific lab where they're transfected by a virus and allowed to express a specific uh, antigen that targets them towards the cancer. Uh, then uh, they're stimulated and allowed to expand, and then they're infused back into the patient. And when they're infused back into the patient, they can uh, they are able to uh, target the cancer and expand. And, pr and for those patients who respond, uh, they have long-term remissions and potentially cures uh, with some of these patients now having no evidence of their disease after these infusions for up to five years. Uh, so I took a lot of my time up talking about these different types of immunotherapies with little focus uh, on the toxicities. But generally speaking, the toxicities are associated with these immunotherapies. Pure immunotherapies have very little toxicity. Most of it is associated with infusion-related reactions, rashes, uh, and can be managed by modulation of the infusion itself and using steroids. Uh, in drugs that have payloads like brintuximab, vidotin, and catsila, uh, the, the chemotherapy that's being loaded into the immunotherapy provides majority of the toxicity. We could see some neuropathy from there. And in terms of the CAR-T therapies and the bispecifics, depending on what cells are being stimulated, if you stimulate a lot of the T cells, that could cause what we call cytokine release syndrome or neurotoxicity, and we're becoming very good at managing that using uh, specific inhibitors and steroids, making the treatment safer than initially perceived. Uh, but if one possibility is to use uh, cells like NK cells and engaging the innate immune system, that usually results in much lower toxicity. I think uh, uh, to try to, co to conclude my remarks, since I'm a bit over time, uh, is that the immune system is really a complex and powerful system, and we're just beginning to unlock the potential, uh, its potential in treatment of cancer. And it will likely bring a new standard of care to many uh, subspecialties in oncology,
potentially replacing chemotherapy and providing a more effective and durable and tolerable treatments. And I turn it back to Dr. Meisner. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Salas. That was really excellent and very comprehensive and really a wonderful look into the future as well in terms of what to expect. And I know the questions feed during the Q&A. So we will take questions very soon. I just want to say a few words about cancer care so that you have a sense of resources that you can access from this organization. So Cancer Care is a national organization, and um, we are staffed by master's-level trained oncology social workers, and we're here to provide a host of services. We offer financial and practical assistance, and we do have a copay foundation. And we also offer counseling services, which is really a fancy word for having a chance to talk to someone who's really listening to you in a systematic way over the telephone or online. Um, and so that's available to anyone on the call. And we also do offer online support groups so that you don't have to travel. And when I think of uh, how many of our audience live in very remote areas or, or difficult, who may have difficulty traveling, an online support group or a telephone support group um, really uh, cuts down all those barriers of travel and cost of travel. Um, and, and feeling tired and really basically being able to participate. Online support groups, you can participate really 24 hours a day. There is, there is no um, specific time. People can post any time on an online support group. And we have at the moment over 138 online support groups, and those groups are for different types of cancers as well as different people along the lifespan. So we have things for young professionals, young adults. We have things for um, for middle-aged adults, for older adults, for caregivers, um, for partners, um, f uh, you know, f for um, adult children. So we have programs for people on all different areas and that you can access just by going to our website. And I should say that after the program today, you'll be getting an evaluation, probably tomorrow. And the evaluation isn't just an evaluation. It will also include all the resources that we mentioned today on the program for you to kind of look up and and take advantage of. In addition to the support groups, we also do offer these programs. So there are lots of these coming up, these workshops. And uh, we also do have publications that often go with them that you can access in fact sheets. So with that being said, you have a bit of a sense of what the different services are. And I would say that uh, you can call us at our Hope Line number or um, visit our website, and we're here to help you. And now we are going to take questions. So I'm going to um, ask Sonia to explain to you how to queue for questions. Please, uh, Sonia, bring all of our speakers on board, and we will take as many of your questions as possible. I know some of you are queuing up already, so uh, Sonia. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star than 1 on your touchdown telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to move yourself from the queue, please press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question comes from Stephanie Kay. Your line is now open. Yes, I want to thank the excellent speakers and Caroline Messner. Thank you so much for bringing this to our attention. Uh, I have two questions. The first question I have is I was cured by targeted therapy of Herceptin breast cancer 12 years ago, but I had to have the chemo with the Herceptin. Is the future now, right now, we're using Herceptin that was used IV? Are you using it by mouth? And are you using Herceptin with immune therapy instead of the standard chemo? And my second question, are you using for prostate cancer, I would like to know, at the VA, uh, immune therapy instead of the standard radiation that always has to be done? Thank you so much. 
Okay, well, thank you, um, Stephanie, for those questions. Um, I'm going to ask if Dr. Daniels could address them in a general way, and then, of course, we do advise you to then, of course, go back to the treating healthcare team for the specifics of each of your situations they're asking about. But nevertheless, Dr. Daniels, if you could just address this in a general way. Sure. Yep, thanks for the questions. For the um, prostate cancer in the VA, um, as you are aware, VA sees a, a pretty um, big-sized group of patients who uh, experience prostate cancer. And when we use radiation, it's it's really with two goals. One is to cure the patient if it's localized disease. Uh, the other is to relieve symptoms. And right now, there is not an immune therapy approach um, that has been proven in prostate cancer to do either of those two main functions that radiation serves in prostate cancer. There is an approved immune therapy that is a vaccine-type treatment. It's called Prostvax. And um, that's a product that where the uh, immune system is uh, educated against a, a target on the prostate cells. But in that case, um, this particular, and it's the only immune therapy to date that has been shown activity in prostate cancer, it can't substitute for the value of uh, radiation. Um, as far as the uh, Herceptin, I, I can address that too just briefly. Um, there is... Um, Right now, the, the target of Herceptin is a growth factor receptor, and we can target that particular receptor with oral medications. And so that is being looked at, um, and there are some approved agents already on the market. Herceptin is being uh, combined with other things, including uh, those oral agents as well as immune therapies. Um, so things are definitely advancing. Oh, um, may I chime in there, too? There was recently a very uh, dramatic announcement about in, instead of using Herceptin uh, after uh, the conclusion of uh, postoperative therapy, using a uh, Herceptin with a chemotherapy drug attached to it, uh, Casidla or, or TDM1. Uh, and there they showed uh, improved results over uh, Herceptin alone. Uh, so, um, you know, I think more developments there, and those of you that are undergoing treatment for breast cancer, um, you know, you should be very hopeful that these new developments quickly get into uh, clinical practice. It's amazing how the uh, landscape is changing so much in the treatment of of all cancers, and so this is a wonderful, wonderful call. And um, we have another telephone question, I believe. Thank you. Our next question comes from Eric W. Your line is now open. In Thank you. My question has to do with CRISPR. I read this morning there for the first time is a clinical trial and it's targeting multiple myeloma and sarcoma and I'm a myeloma patient. So I was wondering if you could explain how that uh, works. Is that an immunotherapy and what is the future of CRISPR? Thank you. Well, thank you for that question. Um, Dr. Salas, could you address that question in a general way? Uh, sure. Uh, so uh, I think uh, CRISPR itself is a technology uh, to allow for targeted gene knockout. Uh, so basically, it's a way to target the genes, and you could use that technology to modify CAR Ts, to modify different, uh, specifically cellular, uh, to, to modify DNA and targeted uh uh, DNA targets uh, and, and targeted proteins so you could better uh, target uh, the immunotherapies. 
So a lot of times CRISPR has been used in the CAR-T kind of uh, cellular therapies and the CAR-NKs to improve their efficacy or decrease their toxicity. So you modify the proteins, either the target itself or the activation of uh, these cells. Uh, and uh, this hopefully will allow for safer and more efficacious uh, uh, targeted uh, lymphocyte uh, cell-targeted uh, therapies. So that's, in general, the, 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 the concept. So itself is not a treatment, but it's a modality to allow for modifications uh, to be introduced to cellular therapies. Excellent. Thank you. Wow, this is there are excellent questions here. Um, our next question, um, Sonia? Our next question comes from Barbara L. Your line is set open. My question was just answered. Thank you. We have a question in front of our online participants. Um, so the question is, um, is immunotherapy used for all cancer, all types of cancer, and how long has this therapy been used? Uh, Dr. Chris, do you want to take that one? Yeah. Um, different, I think for all the speakers said that different kinds of immune treatments have been used for decades, um, something like an interferon or interleukin-2. Um, they've been around for a long time. Uh, I think the um, big change, though, has probably happened in the last uh, five years or so uh, with the emergence of the uh, CAR T-cell technology, particularly in uh, hematopoietic tumors, uh, and also uh, the emergence of the so-called checkpoint inhibitors uh, uh, that target PD-L1 and uh, PD-1. Uh, are, is it right for every kind of cancer? Well, the answer is no. Um, and the reason is not every cancer survives and proliferates based on its evasion of the immune system. Many, many do, and those are the people that have the greatest benefit, but not everyone does. Um, also, the one interesting thing that's happened lately is we have seen that there are characteristics of cancer cells, and there's something called MSI, microsatellite instability, uh, and when that is seen, pretty much no matter what cancer type you have, an immune treatment would be helpful. So while there is no immune treatment that works in every cancer every time, uh, there are immune treatments that work in a lot of cancer, uh, and there are characteristics your doctors can test for that would say an immune treatment might work in your cancer despite its site of origin. Excellent. Thank you. Okay. And... Um so, and we have another phone question. Thank you. Your next question comes from Teresa T. Your line is now open. Hi, thank you. Um, I am a very newly diagnosed anaplastic thyroid cancer patient, which has metastasized into my lungs and my liver and my bones. Um, this has all just happened in the last two to three weeks. I'm due to start my first immunotherapy treatment tomorrow in Boston, and I believe what I'm going to be receiving is pembrolizumab, pembrolizumab. Um, but my understanding is that there really isn't uh, a whole lot else happening with the type of cancer I have, and I just wondered if anybody uh, on the panel has any experience with this type of cancer, and would you have any other suggestions? Well, thank you, Tracy, for that excellent question. Um, I'm going to ask if Dr. Daniels could address it to begin with. Um, sure. 
Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I'll just say thanks for sharing your story. Um, and uh, anaplastic thyroid cancer is a um, small set, but um, an aggressive, as, as you now know, form of um, thyroid cancer. Pembrolizumab uh, has just recently shown activity in anaplastic, so I'm I'm glad that uh, your physicians are uh, well up to date on that. Um, there's also some targeted therapies in anaplastic um, that are worth exploring, and uh, if not already done, I'm sure your team's planning on doing some genomic sequencing of your um, of your tumor. Um, because it's relatively rare, there is less going on in that tumor type, but I will say that um, pembrolizumab was developed in, in melanoma, and, uh, and the targeted therapies we use in anaplastic were developed in other tumor types, and so things spill over, and some of the cellular therapies that have been spoken about um, and other developing immune therapies uh, will spill over into thyroid cancer, um, but there are unfortunately just a handful of trials in the U.S. right now, and so I would say clinicaltrials.gov is a great resource, and there are some um, thyroid cancer uh, support groups out there too, as well as Cancer Care can um, give you some links uh, for additional resources. Interesting. Perhaps you and I could talk after the program as well just to follow up. Um, but thank you um, for your questions, and um, and it sounds like you are getting it sounds like you're getting state of the art care. So um, and so thank you. Um, and a question for Dr. Um, um, Beethoff Warner: um, If my doctor does not recommend immunotherapy, should I get a second opinion? Well, that's a great question. Thanks for reaching out and asking. Um, I think you know. There are many patients for whom immunotherapy is a good treatment option, and there are many patients for whom, at least at this point in their disease course, that's not the right treatment option. So I think, you know, a lot of things uh, go into making that decision. It is never wrong to get a second opinion, um, and I think almost every doctor will be very happy to hear that you are getting a second opinion. Um, I wouldn't necessarily base it on, you know, it, should I be getting immunotherapy or not? But it is always uh, up to a patient to make, you know, good informed decisions and get as many opinions as they can to feel good about their treatment options. Um, the times where immunotherapy may not be the best treatment option is, you know, there are some diseases which have been shown not really to respond very well to immunotherapy. Um, and so we choose other more standard therapies first. Um, other times, patients may have some underlying conditions, like an autoimmune condition or some type of inflammatory problem, where immunotherapy could actually make that significantly worse and interfere with quality of life. And so sometimes doctors don't recommend immunotherapy for patients like those. So I think these are very, you know, case-by-case -case decisions that need to be made. But I think if you're considering getting a second opinion, it is always the right decision to do that and just be as informed as you possibly can be. Thank you. Thank you. Great question, great answer. Thank you. And I think one last question, and this will be our last question for Dr. Sawas. Um, you've mentioned the targeted targeting of CD20, which is of interest to me, having Waldenstrom's. What can be done to get around very severe reaction to Teximab and mild reaction to Ofatimumab? Uh, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. 
Uh, I mean, uh, it depends on the type of reaction, of course. Uh, I'm sure uh, for patients who have um, developed infusion-related reactions, multiple modalities are, uh, are developed to kind of overcome that. And many patients who receive the anti-CD20s for the first time can have a reaction that's reported up to 15% of the patients. Uh, but if the reactions persist, then uh, there's a possibility that there's a true allergy and it's not just an infusion-related reaction. And different methods like desensitization through allergist immunologists are able to desensitize uh, patients to immunotherapies like rituxan, like ofatumumab, ubuntuzumab, just as they desensitize patients to uh, penicillins or, or any other drug that they're allergic to if there is a need. And uh, they admit you to the hospital and they administer a little bit of the drug uh, multiple times. And we've done that uh, a few times at Columbia University Medical Center, and I'm sure at many other centers they're able to do that as well. So that be, would be one way to overcome uh, the the reactions that happen uh, as a result of anti-CD20s. There is, you know, if, 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 if that's not possible, then, you know, definitely there's other medications and other targets like target for B-cell lymphomas targeting CD19 now is a possibility with immunotherapies in development and uh, in, in cases of aggressive lymphomas, the CAR-T therapies are an option. Thank you. Well, I want to thank our speakers. You have been phenomenal. Just an amazing call today. Um, I also want to thank all of our participants who really asked great questions both on the phone and online. Um, and I know we have many more questions in queue, so I, um, I want to respect that. And I do want to also let you know that there are other places to get your questions answered. Um, so, um, and I also want to let you know there was a part two to this program, so that's, that's another thing. But first of all, in terms of any of you who have any outstanding questions, and I know some of you do, and even if you asked a question today, we definitely do not want to sidestep your healthcare team, so please go back to your healthcare team with any questions you have that you didn't get to ask, or even if you had answers to your questions today, go back to your healthcare team and discuss what you've learned today with them, um, and you may ask them more informed questions or different questions of your healthcare team. And the second sense of which we've heard today on the program is that um, the National Cancer Institute does have um, a wonderful um, uh, website. Um, www.cancer.gov or for clinical trials, clinicaltrials.gov. You'll be getting that again in the evaluation forms, that information. And they also have an 800 number, 1-800-422-6237, and you'll get that as well. And what's nice about that is they have a live chat feature where you can post your question, and one of their information specialists will search their databases and get you information that you can then take back to your treating healthcare team. We do recommend that you go to credible sites, which means that all of the organizations that are listed in our program that are collaborating organizations, they do have very carefully checked and vetted um, information to get you. That's recent information. That's the other thing that if from today's call, you probably have learned how rapidly and recently things are changing. And so it's really important that you get information that is this year, not five years ago, not three years ago, but really what's happening, what happened this year and even with the past few months. So that's very important that you're getting current information. Um, I also um, do, do want to let you know that there is a part two to this program. Um, and uh, the part two will be on managing the side effects of immunotherapy. That will happen on May 15th, and it's from 4 to 5 p.m. Eastern time. It's a little different time than we usually do it, um, and so um, you'll be getting information about that as well. Um, most important as we conclude our program today, I would not want any one of you to feel that you're alone. 
in coping with cancer or, or in your know, therapy treatments or any type of treatments or concerns you may have. You, of course, have your healthcare team, and you do have a lot of organizations to turn to. Uh, cancer Care is one of them, so we're offering this program today, but you also have a listing of many other organizations. Um, um, I do want to give a call out to the American Cancer Society that has a 24-hour call center 365 days a year, which is a great resource for all of you um, because often in the middle of the night, um, something comes up, you don't quite know what to do with it, you have a place to call. If it's an emergency, of course, you go to the emergency room, but if it's a question you want to talk to somebody about, you can talk with someone. And so there, we do know that you will at times feel alone, but we also want you to know there are resources out there for you to call. That's very important. Um, and so as we conclude the program today, um, I hope that you all recognize that there are lots of programs coming up, lots of services you can access from Cancer Care um, in terms of financial practical assistance as well as counseling, and that um, there are a lot of other services out there as well for you. So um, thank you all for participating today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day, and uh, we'll see you on, in Part 2. Okay, take care. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This includes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.